Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. As the late Richard Ben Kramer so brilliantly detailed in his seminal book, What It Takes, running for president as a serious candidate is maybe one of the hardest, most grueling and challenging things one can do. And remember, Kramer wrote in 1988, a campaign before the internet, before 24-7 news. And yet even then, he said that politics had become a kind of public utility, hot and cold running politics any time of the day or night. Today, in our hyper-politicized, non-stop news environment, it's even worse. Now imagine breaking barriers and taboos while running. We seem to be doing that more and more these days, as Barack Obama did as the first black candidate, as Hillary Clinton did in putting more cracks in the glass ceiling, and as Pete Buttigieg did as the first LGBTQ candidate. Just as challenging, again, as Kramer wrote about, is being the spouse of the candidate. For Chastin Buttigieg, the challenges were particularly unique. For a 31-year-old gay man with no political experience, he had only his own personal experience and history from which to draw on. He shares that journey with us in his new memoir, I Have Something to Tell You. And it is my pleasure to welcome Chastin Buttigieg here to the program. Chastin, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. What an introduction. Well, thank you. It's great to have you here. First of all, tell us a little bit about your life growing up in northern Michigan, a little bit about uh, what that was like and, and kind of a sense of place. Yeah, so I grew up in a, a, a fairly socially conservative uh, environment um, in Traverse City, Michigan, although Traverse City is really pushing the needle on progress quite quickly days uh, at the time. It was just simply uh, known to be unsafe to, to be out. You could not be out. Uh, my family, uh, strong on tradition, Catholic family, um, very nuclear family. Most of the family still lives here. Um, and I did everything I could to blend in. So I uh, was in 4-H, raised cows, uh, did pretty much whatever I thought I could do to sort of blend in with the other boys. Uh, at school, sort of a roughneck environment, uh, you know, think guns and tractors, and, <laughs> uh, you know, big pickup trucks, and, and was definitely a mama's boy, but tried my best to uh, blend in with my brothers as well. Um, but <laughs> when, I, when, I, when I look back, it's, it's not so obvious. But uh, I just thought uh, I had to do whatever it took to, uh, to keep myself safe. I didn't want people to figure out my deepest secret. Uh, and so I did whatever... Uh, I thought was necessary just to blend in with everybody else. When you think back on that time and that life growing up and all that, that you had to keep hidden, what you had to go through, the stress from that, the pressure from that, talk about the way you think that it in some ways prepared you for the public life that you're living today. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, fast forward, uh, I meet Pete Buttigieg. Five years later, I'm out on the campaign trail. He's running for president. And you know, I, at first I sort of felt like an imposter in some of these places and these, you know, gymnasiums talking to thousands of people about, you know, the, the hardest political game in, in, in the American arena running for president. And, and I realized, you know, I might not have the political chops that other people have, but what I do have is all this lived experience of how politics happened to me, how it shaped me into who I am today, for better or for worse, what it felt like you know, growing up and questioning our systems of government and how they were making life harder for other people like me who were growing up in the closet, feeling like this country was an unsafe place to exist or watching my mother battle cancer and navigating the healthcare system. 
so I just had a lot of personal, personal vulnerabilities and truths to share with other people. I'd say, you know, I, I stand in front of you, not as somebody who, you know, feel uh, that they have to be here, but uh, because I want to be here because I want to see this country change. I know what it feels like uh, to be uh, in shoes similar to yours, uh, to question whether or not I truly belong in this country. And, and I come by it, not, you know, from years of experience in elected office or, or even years of experience being married to someone in elected office. Um, just because I, I love my husband, I think he'll, he'll be a great president. And I desperately need things to change, not just for everybody else, but for myself, for my family. Uh, and there are even issues in the LGBTQ community that, uh, you know, we were talking about on the national scale and, and we're living it uh, as well as a couple. The other part of it that, that had to be part of your consciousness as well is the remarkable change that has happened. That that from growing up in that place in northern Michigan to Pete running for president as a serious and viable candidate, a lot had to have changed. Oh, absolutely. And a lot changed because people were willing to make change. You know, people got their hands dirty and, and then they got in there and did the hard work, especially when people were telling our community that we were, you know, vile, disgusting creatures undeserving of, of love and, and equal rights. Um, but we, you know, Pete and I and our whole campaign knew that we we stood on the shoulders who got us to that position in the first place. And it's also the people that we would meet, you know, in coffee shops and bookstores in rural towns in Iowa, New Hampshire and uh, you know, even in the middle of the desert in Nevada, who maybe would be honest about not always being there on LGBTQ rights, but so desperately wanted to be on the right side of history this time around. Uh, and, and I think we got there in part because of all the hard work that people did and also presenting a campaign that was about this sense of belonging that I think many people desperately wanted to feel. On the other hand, talk a little bit about what surprised you in terms of criticism that came not from one side, but really from both sides. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> you always open yourself up to criticism uh, uh, from from both sides. So it, it wasn't necessarily surprising um, that when you're running a historical race, everybody has an idea of what it should look like, what it should sound like, and you know, who, who we, who they wanted us to be. Um, and, and, but, you know, I, I think uh, Obama's pointed out and Hillary Clinton pointed out, you know, everybody wants you to get that moment right. But what their opinion of, you know, that their opinion of that moment might look a little different than, you know, how you're running the race. Did you have a sense of being part of a historical campaign? And, and how did you process that if you did? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you can you can spend a lot of time on social media and reading criticism all day, but I was spending all day doing the work. You know, I uh, I spent a lot of time with LGBTQ centers and homeless service providers and meeting with students and teachers because I'm a teacher myself. All all things that had a you know a, a part of my story, and every day uh, I would meet some young person who would either you know pull me in for a hug you know, clutching me because they didn't want to let go because they feel, you know, for the first time that they have this sense of hope or they'd whisper in my ear because their parents are standing right behind them, that they're not quite ready to come out, but they're, you know, watching our race so close, closely and are so inspired. You know, I do these round tables with students who had been pushed out of their homes or were navigating the foster care system, um, all because of how they identify. 
And I would be reminded uh, of how important the race was and not only how important it was to get that moment right, but what we still needed to do and still have to do in our community. It was when, you know, people twice my age and even older than me uh, would be in absolute tears when they would meet Peter and I because they never thought that they would see the day that an openly gay man and his husband could be, you know, dominating on the national scale in an American presidential race. Um, and it just reminded me of all of the people that had come before me who had done the hard work before me and how important it was. Talk about the pressure of that, certainly in, in any presidential campaign, in any campaign, but certainly far more so in a presidential campaign. There's the pressure of realizing that every utterance, everything you say, everything you do is under such scrutiny. You were carrying that plus these added burdens that you're talking about, these added responsibilities. Yes. Yeah, so, you know, I, I never felt like the team was muzzling me or telling me, you know, who to be or what to say. But you just operated under the assumption, you know, or or the understanding, I should say, that everything you do um, will come under scrutiny. And every tweet you send and everything that you say, even when you think you're in private, could be recorded on an iPhone by somebody in the room and make its way to Twitter. So there is that constant pressure, even when you're you know, on the airplane, what am I reading? What am I eating? What am I saying to my seat partner? Is somebody recording me? Is someone going to put this up online? Um, you know, you're, you're, you're constantly sort of looking over your shoulder, wondering if people are, are watching you, observing you, and recording you. But at the same time, you know, I navigated the races myself. I, I, I wasn't pretending to be anybody. I wasn't. Uh, Peter and I made that promise to one another that we were just going to go out there and, and be ourselves and hope that people liked it. Because, it's one, just enough pressure in of itself to, you know, constantly be in the fishbowl and under the microscope. But two, if you're, if you're having to do it, pretending to be somebody else, you know, to put up this glossy facade, uh, it's crushing, it's exhausting. Uh, and I, you know, it, you kind of just remind yourself every time you go to open your mouth that, you know, people are going to take your words at face value. And, um, you also have to think about how people are going to misconstrue your sentence. If you, you know, take a pause where you shouldn't be taking a pause or how people can splice a video and make it sound like you're trying to say something that you're not. So, yeah, I mean, I won't lie that that can be really exhausting and sometimes really scary. Talk about what you saw in other people along the campaign trail. Certainly politics can accomplish lots of great things, as, as you've touched on. But it also, and it has been written about historically, that politics can really shape people for the worst. I mean, it's a delicate and fine line. Sure. I mean, I have seen politics shape people for the worst. I've seen them clutch to this president in particular, um, you know, with not even veiled racism and misogyny and homophobia um, and, and have questioned what it truly is about this president that makes them feel so safe and seen um, and why they they flock to someone so openly hateful and bigoted like him. Uh, but I've also experienced, uh, you know, people uh, changed for the better, um, especially with the politics of belonging that I think we built on our campaign. I will never forget uh, this kickoff I was doing in New Hampshire. You know, you come in, you rally the troops, you give a big speech, and you thank everyone for showing up to knock on doors for your husband. And uh, there was this woman who came up after the event, and she said, I just want to say uh, I'm sorry. I haven't, I haven't always gotten it right, 
and I voted for this president um, and I regret that. And uh, she started to tear up and said, and I, I also haven't always been there for you. And I think what she's trying to tell me is she hasn't always been there for gay rights. Um, but she was holding flipboard and she's all bundled up in her snow gear to go out and knock on doors. And, and she said, but, you know, I, I believe in your husband and I'm going to get it right this time around. And, and we had a, you know, we shared a hug and, and she went on her way to go knock on doors for Pete. And I just saw how if you build a campaign around the sense of belonging, not only, you know, inviting in Democrats, but also inviting people from the other other side. You know, that's how we win elections. And, and I saw how uh, strong Peter's support was from people leaving uh, um, the Trump campaign or leaving, uh, you know, the other side of the aisle for, I think, a more inclusive policy. Did it change your views at all about the country and about people in the country? Yes. So I, at first, thought politics was very cynical, very dark, um, sort of a intimidating place to, to be. I think if you spend all day consuming uh, your news and your inputs and your outrage on, on Twitter and social media, it can look like a really dark place. And that's sort of how the system is structured. You know, it's, people aren't really talking with one another on, on Twitter. They're just talking at one another. But I was spending all day, you know, talking with people. And I was out there in their homes and their communities, their libraries, you know, their diners. And you have to go out there and look for the good. You really do. And once you find it, you realize that all of these people are just trying to make life a little bit better for people in their, in their communities, in their backyards. I remember this woman in Iowa who was running this after-school theater program in the middle of nowhere. Um, and as a theater teacher myself, that was really inspiring to see that the arts had made their way to this small rural community. But I think what it was also serving at was, was sort of a, an underground LGBTQ center because these kids needed a safe space to go and they had nowhere to go in their community. And this, this teacher, you know, was spending her own money operating this center. So kids not only had a place to practice the arts, but also just a safe space to be. And that's just an example of, you know, one woman in the middle of Iowa rolling up her sleeves and doing the work. And I saw that all over the country. And it was deeply inspiring because yes, it, it can feel really dark and scary at times. Um, but if you go out looking for it, it, it's truly inspiring. What were you most afraid of out there on the trail? Well, if I'm being honest, it was um, it was somebody deciding that, you know, they would take their threats um, further than the, the packages and the nasty emails we were receiving. Uh, and when you're on a historical campaign like that, uh, as I write about in the book, you know, those thoughts come creeping in, especially at moments where you wish they wouldn't. You're you're running in a parade or you're you know, out in a very open field talking with thousands of people. Um, and, and, and those thoughts flood in, of, you know, what happens if somebody decides they don't want to see this anymore, like the way they're talking about it online. Um, you know, I was afraid of, I was afraid of how it impact my marriage. I was afraid of how it would, you know, rip me away from my friends and my family. But I, what I was most afraid of was losing my husband. Talking about the fear, you brought uh, some friends from time to time out on the campaign trail with you as a way to deal with some of the pressures of it. Yeah, you know, I, I had my team and they're, they're committed to making sure I'm eating and drinking water <laughs> and reading my briefs and getting, you know, making sure I'm, I'm getting to where I need to be on time. But, 
I'm traveling away from Peter. We spent most of the campaign apart from one another because I was uh, out there doing surrogate work on his behalf. And you're away from your family. And so I asked, you know, friends, if, if they ever had time off for a long weekend, they could come join me on, on the campaign trail because it started to get pretty lonely. You know, you're, you're on all day, sometimes 18 hours a day. You're, you're going from one meeting to the next and a fundraiser and then an event and a rally and an office opening. And, and you're just constantly speaking and showing up for other people. And you start to forget that you really need to show up for yourself too. So I, I had to uh, make sure I was surrounded uh, by people who would, you know, just be there to sing in the car and, you know, share a meal <laughs> with and, and just relax every now and then. Did you have the opportunity anywhere along the way to talk to spouses of other candidates to get a sense of, of how they coped with things? Yeah, you know, there's a, there's a whole array of political spouses, you know, people who they show up and they golf clap and they're happy for their spouse and that's all they want to do. You know, they want to see their spouse do well. They love their spouse, but they're not interested in, you know, being being seen in the spotlight or, or talking to other people. And, and then there are spouses out there uh, just like I was, you know, uh, campaigning for their spouse um, and speaking on their spouse's behalf. And um, I got to know uh, Dr. Biden well on the campaign. She was always very welcoming. Um, the first debate we were at, she stood up and introduced herself to me. And that was uh, very nice because I came into that arena thinking, you know, everyone's kind of gripping their edges of their chair. They don't want to talk to anyone. They're <laughs> just focused on their spouse. And uh, Doug Emhoff, uh, Senator Harris's husband, very funny guy. Uh, we would run into each other at events uh, where we're both speaking on our spouse's behalf. And, and he as well is sort of a fish out of water in the way I was. You know, he has his own job. He has a career. Uh, you know, he's a dad. Uh, and now here he is thrust onto the, the political stage as a, a political spouse. Um, and we were able just to sort of talk about the, the hilarity and the obscure, you know. How did it impact your relationship, your marriage? How, what, what was the impact, positive or negative, during the course of the campaign? You know, I, I think uh, Pete knew the pressure was on to get the moment right, you know, to win the race. But I think he also very well understood the pressure to make sure he was continuously showing up in our marriage. And I was so surprised by how much he did that. Sometimes he makes me feel like the worst husband because he always was <laughs> you know, slipping in notes into my backpack that I would find. And we had a, you know, a nightly call every night. Sometimes that meant staying up very late or if I was getting on a plane, you know, we had two teams who knew how important that was to us. So they were always scheduling, you know, ways that we could touch base with one another. And we tried to see each other two to three days a week. Um, and, and it was scary at first, because that's what I, like I mentioned, I was afraid of losing that. Um, but he's so good at, at showing up not only on the campaign trail, but just in this movement in general. Assuming you do this again, which is uh, a strong possibility, what would you do different next time? What did you learn from this that you would bring to a second try at this? <laughs> I Well, to be honest, I'm just enjoying being selfish and having him home. So, <laughs> um, and any talk about what he does in the future is beyond me. But I, I, I got to be honest. I look back on what I did on the campaign trail with an immense sense of pride. At first, I was very scared and intimidated by the, the entire process. And then I went out there and I said, you know what, screw it. I'm going to be who I am. I'm going to talk about what I want to talk about. I'm going to connect with people in my way. I'm going to do it my way. And I'm really glad I did because I feel like there could have been times where I could have given in to people offering advice about how I should perform and what I should wear and where I should go and what I should do. And I, and I just pushed all that away 
And my gut told me that was really dangerous because I'd never done it before. Um, but looking back, I don't think I would have changed anything about how I approached it. There are obviously ways I wish it could have been covered differently. Uh, I, I wish, you know, I could have invited more media to follow me on the trail because I, at first I wasn't focused on what people were saying about me in the media. I just wanted to do the work. But then I learned that, you know, it's a, an endless media cycle. And the way you get people to realize what you're doing on the trail is to invite the media in. But when I think about how I connected with people and how I, I spoke about my husband and spoke about the need for a more hopeful and inclusive politics that brings people together, I'm, I'm really proud of, of what we did, uh, and, and I'm proud of myself. Chastin Buttigieg, his memoir is I Have Something to Tell You. Chastin, I thank you so much for spending time with us and sharing your story. Hey, you got it. Thanks for having me. Thank you.